morning, everybody. <clears throat> this is a day, at least for me, this is a day of great celebration because it frosted and it kills the grass. So, anyway, <clears throat> there are two scriptures that I want us to look at this morning. The first one is found in the fifth chapter of John, the Gospel of John. And there's just a couple verses we'll look at. The passage is longer, but I don't want to take the time to read it. Um, little background is just the healing of the man who had been lame for 38 years and he was at a place called the Pool of Bethesda and <clears throat> there was apparently, scripture doesn't contradict this, it just reports that occasionally, supernaturally, the pool there fed by a spring would be stirred up and people stepping into the pool would be healed of whatever disease brought them there. And it says many people would um, lay or sit, whatever their condition was, around that pool. Jesus went there and discussed with this man who had been 38 years unable to walk and ask him if he wanted to be well. He, of course, answered, yes, but I never am able to, I, I'm lame, I can't get into the pool when the angel stirs it. So Jesus just simply said, take up your bed and walk. And he immediately did. The problem with that, in the eyes of the Pharisees, the self-righteous religious police, was that this man was carrying his bedroll on the Sabbath. Nothing was supposed to be done that was qualified as work on the Sabbath. And so they attacked Jesus first by attacking the man he healed. Jesus disappeared and they find this guy carrying his sleeping bag and they say hey, hey 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 it's the sabbath you're not supposed to be doing that he answers this is a great text sometime the one the man who healed me told me to do it the one who healed him instantly became his authority, and he had an obligation to him. So he said, the one who healed me told me to do this. That makes it all right. If he has the power to heal, I'm obligated to him. And of course, they well, who told you this? Well, Jesus, a bit later, found this man in the temple. And he gives him quite a, a warning. He said, you're well. Look, you're well, you're walking. Don't 
sin anymore or a worse thing will happen to you, which was 38 years flat on his back, unable to walk. Then the man discovered he didn't know who Jesus was. Just knew he'd healed him. When Jesus talked to him in the temple, he then told the Pharisees, I know the man's name now. It was Jesus. Well, that's who they probably suspected. Um, was nothing but a troublemaker to them. So they confront him. And we'll pick up <clears throat> the reading here. In, we'll just go ahead and repeat a bit in 14. This is the middle of the paragraph. But <clears throat> after the healing had done, it says, Afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's our first scripture. We'll look in a moment at the second one. But here... Jesus is asserting to these people, I am God, making myself equal with God by calling him my father. And the reason I don't observe the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man. It's a gift to us for a time of rest. God doesn't other than the seventh day after creation, he, he's never rested. And that's G Jesus' point here, is he is working all the time. My father's working and I am working, always. My father has been working up until now, and I am working also. By saying that, of course, he shattered their authority through physical laws that kept people under. But of course, he also said, I'm God. God is my father. And they understood that correctly, that he was saying, I am equal with God. That didn't faze them. They didn't believe. They still sought to kill him. They acknowledged that he was crediting himself with being God. Then they went around trying to figure out how to, how to kill him. If he's God, that's going to be pretty tough. That's biting off a little more than you can chew. Now, <clears throat> what I want to look at today is what is God doing? Jesus said, my father's working all the time. And I am working all the time. What is he doing? First of all, just a quick thought here. I have read, I'm sure you have, about the millions, literally, 
now with technological advances in how we can communicate millions and maybe billions of messages, some encrypted intelligence messages, all kinds of cables back and forth, embassies far flung in the world, communicating with Washington. Every place there is a British embassy, they're com communicating with London. Every single nation on the face of the earth is communicating. There are centers that are, Washington would be one, centers that are absolutely overwhelming in the activity that's going on. And if we look at it physically and just in this world, those are the busiest places on the globe. It's, it's overwhelming to try to even figure out what all is going on. What a center of information, commands. That's nothing. That's like the Mall of America to the little store down at the bottom of the hill. The throne of God. Heaven. God's throne is the busiest place there is. Because there are growing number, but seven billion. There's information on seven billion people, current information, all through the day, coming to God. And think about this. In addition to all of that, Of those seven billion, Jesus said, the hairs of your head are numbered. God knows the hairs on the heads of seven billion people. Plus, Jesus said, whenever a sparrow falls to the ground, my father is right there. He knows. Now, I don't have the communication skills to get across to us how big this God is <laughs> that we serve and what he knows and what he does. Seven billion people who also have a conscience that he put there and he watches them and he knows their thoughts before they think them and their words before they say them. And he is there to tap them on the shoulder say, don't say that. Don't do that. Don't go there. It doesn't matter that the bulk of people don't listen to him. Every single one of those people have a personal communication with God. How big is this God? When he said, my father is working. And I'm working. He's got a, he's busy. But he's not. He dwells in tranquility. This is no challenge to him. It's not too hard for him. There's nothing. He says, I am the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? This is who 
This is who we came here today to worship. This is who we are to trust in, are to obey, are to live before. So what all is God doing? Now, obviously, we can't finish this subject. But as much as we can, what is God doing? Jesus said, we're working. I'm working. My Father's working. And in another place, Jesus uses this phrase. He said, my Father is always, it's a different translation, my Father is always at His work. He assigned us in creation work. Adam and Eve were to till the ground and so forth. He gives each of us gifts. He gives us tasks. What are his tasks? What does he do? There are probably two categories. Creationally, just looking at creation, which is massive enough. But just looking at creation, what does he do? One, he upholds all of creation, it says, by the word of his power. Now, what does that mean? That means he doesn't even get up out of his chair. He just conserves everything that he made. He keeps all of his physical laws of gravity and the planets and the orbits and all of the ongoing sustaining of the world, the wind and the weather and the currents in the seas, he maintains and conserves all of that. But doesn't break a sweat, doesn't lose track. I don't know if you most of us at some time will stumble onto Animal Planet or Discovery or some something and see newly discovered strange creatures from 30,000 feet deep in the seas and they carry their own lamp in front of them, fish. God made that. He knows how it reproduces. He keeps that going. I know there are some species that go extinct. But there's so many more we don't even know. Creationally, God conserves everything. The seasons. We notice the leaves turning. And they'll shed their leaves. And we know from experience they'll be bare through the winter but they're not dead they'll come back again all of this massive system all of it God conserves it second he controls it there's a certain amount and we might think well why didn't he do anything with the hurricane God controls things even by what he doesn't do. When he doesn't stop something, he's controlling it. He's allowing it. He's never not doing something. 
there's mystery in all of this because we always wonder and we ask questions. Why? Why why is that was that town spared? This one wasn't. Tornado goes down through a neighborhood. One house is left standing, not touched. Why? I don't know. I don't know. There's a place here that for much mystery with God. And not, God is not a problem. He's not snarky. He's not um, difficult to deal with. But he's not obligated to tell us what he's up to. He doesn't have, we don't have the right to have him explain himself to us. I don't know why he does some things, why he allows some things, and why he pro prohibits some things, and how do I know he prohibited? I don't, because it didn't happen. It didn't hit my neighborhood or my family or whatever. I don't even know what he's prohibited. I don't know what God has spared me from and you from. I don't know what accidents, a slight delay, something that you maybe griped about, kept you from an accident, from some fatal wreck. I don't know. There's so much that God's doing. We can't figure out what he is doing. And there's how much more that he, that's hidden that we don't know. Now that's just creationally. The entire world that he sustains. But when it comes to human beings made in his image and likeness who have fallen from our intended state and relationship, what, what's he working when it comes to this, to us? So the second area that he operates in, that he's working, is redemptively. Creationally and redemptively. Redemptively, there are a number of things that God is doing all the time. At once. That's another thing. He, you know, we talk about people. Boy, I tell you what, she can really multitask. Listen, you want to talk about multitasking? God's our example. He does all of this at the same time. Everywhere. Trying to come up with a kind of a hierarchy or a logical progression. He calls. He speaks. He communicates to every human being. Psalm 50 he calls the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof all day long. He's calling. He's calling. He, what, what is it? What's he calling about? He's communicating with us. What is he communicating? Mostly, initially, with lost, when we're rebels, he convicts. He doesn't leave us alone when we are contemplating or committing deeds that displease him and break his law, he'll tell you. He convicts our hearts. And all of the denial that we offer, 
I, 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 no, I didn't realize that was wrong, is a lie. Boils down to this. Either God's true and the Holy Spirit is faithful to fulfill his office, which is to convince every human being of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Either the Holy Spirit is guilty of malfeasance in his office that the Father appointed him to, or somebody's not telling the truth when they say, God doesn't bother my conscience. I'd never bother my... You're lying. I may have told... I probably told somebody this. Probably, I don't know, hadn't been pastoring for two, two years, three years, just had graduated from seminary, at which point there was nothing more for me to learn. And there was a family, and I really loved them. And um, they were messed up, and you know, um, but they were pretty faithful to come to church. I prayed for them, prayed for them, prayed for them. And one particular Sunday, I, can't, I don't remember everything, about it, but I felt like the Lord was talking to them, and I just, you know, we gave gave an invitation to come and kneel at the altar and pray, and a number of people did. They didn't, and it, I, I just was in anguish about it, and they kind of hung around, and so I talked to him at the back door, and I said, I said, John, uh, has the Lord been talking to your heart? No. I said, you know, I pray for you, and you, we'd talked a lot. He knew that I knew, or, or he knew that I figured he needed to get saved, that he wasn't saved, even though he said he was. And I kind of questioned him again. He said, no, he said, nothing. I still remember just worked up. You know, I locked up the doors and went back to my office and and I closed the door of my office and I just said, Lord, what in the world? I've been praying for that guy and his family and you know the mess they're in and their kids are fouled up. I've prayed for them every single day for some years. And then he, he says, you aren't even talking to him. I'll never. That's one of those few audible times. And I, I, I prayed. I said, Lord, what's going on? It was just like audible words. He's lying. <laughs> and I hate to admit it, but I sort of hadn't thought of that. If I believed God, and that little event helped me to trust him more, I know he's working. Really, what this man was accusing God of and what I was suspicioning God of that he wasn't working wasn't doing anything that really taught me a lesson I'm working my father's working all the time so when anybody says he's not talking to me I don't feel troubled my conscience doesn't bother me and they're living a life contrary to God they are lying period. He said, I call everyone all day long. 
I, he convicts. He shows us our need. He bothers us. He's, he, he works on our heart, our conscience. And he is faithful. He constrains without compelling. What I mean by that, there are much, many things that God does in holding us back from sinning against him. He will thwart some of our efforts to do evil things. Now, he still counts it that I would have done it if he hadn't put up some roadblocks. But I can think specifically, which you won't, I don't have time to tell you, I can think of things that I know I'd have gotten into huge trouble and God just plain blocked my path. Now, I didn't commit the deed, but I planned to so that I got credit for planning it, which meant I was guilty as if I'd have done it, but God kept me back from it. The Old Testament's got a several cases where God told people, I kept you back from doing that. So he constrains us, but he doesn't compel us. Now let me explain what I mean there. He can constrain me from committing evil, but he doesn't compel me to love him. Even though he may stop for my good, to keep from scarring and destroying myself, hold us back from doing things, he'll never make me love him and obey him. Doesn't, he's not in the compelling business when it comes to loving him and obeying him. He won't do it. He gives me a free choice. He constrains without compelling. Of course, if we'll turn to him, he converts us. He converts totally. To those, it says, who are in Christ, all things have been made new. There is a radical, observable, documentable change in every person who runs up the white flag and surrenders to God and says, Lord, I'm not going to live a rebel anymore. Forgive me my sins. He converts, which means he makes me into something new. He changes me. Our hearts are different. We're really, even though we look just the same, we're not the same people. We're a new creation. We're different. That should be, that's the benchmark of a person who has been converted. It's new. Old habits are gone. New desire, new affection, new agenda, new ambitions, everything is New. He converts and he's good at it. Let me just mention this too. There are so many things. God works in different ways. I know. But the, the day we're in where frankly human methods, human means, we have elbowed God off into the corner, we'll take care of this. And so then we set up some 55-step program and we 
were in counseling forever. And here, let me just throw this in. This just irritate whoever I can irritate. I don't ever use the word recovering. There's a reason for it. Well, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm not a recovering alcoholic. Now, I wasn't an alcoholic. I was a horrible, filthy mouth cusser. I'm not today. 50 years or however longer than that ago when I got saved. Well, I'm just a recovering cusser. No. It quit. It quit. Because when God converts, he converts. Or the meaning of the word is nullified. There's no such thing as converting. Convert means to be made into something else. I'm not recovering. I'm recovered. I don't use that term. Because it discredits God. I am not the same person that I was before I knelt by my bed, poured my heart out to God, and told him I was a rat. Think. And you know what he did? He agreed. <laughs> he agreed. He doesn't, God doesn't come to us and say, oh, now, Danny, you don't say about yourself. He said, hey, you're right, and you don't even know how right you are. He converts. He's God. He can do that. He converts. He cleanses. He cleanses our heart. This is another truth that is much denied today. But the old sinful nature that we're born with, that's not a problem for God to cleanse, to remove, so that I am restored to the state he created us in, which was a spontaneous inclination to the right, to love God, to love him, to want to please him, to want to follow him, to want to fellowship with him, to keep the skies clear over my head between him and me. There's a spontaneous inclination that he restores to us so that we're not Christians who struggle with some inner undertow the other direction, God can remove that. He's, he's good at it. He's God. He confirms. God always confirms the truth to us. He reminds us. He sent the Holy Spirit into the world to remind us of truth. And he keeps confirming us. And how does he do it? He does it through his word. And he does it through the promptings and the witness of the Holy Spirit. We have to have the continual confirming that God does for us in a day like today where truth is gone. And everybody's got their own truth. Well, that's your truth. This is my truth. That's your. No. We have gotten rid of objective truth. Well, we think we have. We have said there's no objective truth. So that means each one of us then, I'm my own little God. Pathetic little God. I'm my own source of authority. Own source of truth. 
I don't answer to anybody else but me. Long time ago, somebody, well, I, there's somebody here in the congregation who will someday answer for this. Um, Wally Lapata. He's not in this service. Um, but I use the illustration of a picture we have of our son, Stephen, and he was about three or four. And it was his birthday, and we went to Burger King. And he had one of those. And when he was a little kid, Stephen's ears were the size of car doors open. And he's sitting there, um, you know, with the level, the edge of the table clear up here. And he's looking at us, and he's got the Burger King crown on, you know, that you hook together a piece of cardboard. And it's lopsided over one ear, and, you know. And I've looked at that, and I thought, what a picture of the patheticness of us trying to be king of our little life. It's laughable. And I can't remember, it's been a number of years ago I gave, mentioned that. And so a couple Sundays later, Wally Lopata gave me a little crown. Um, one of those Burger King crowns is on my desk. Um, I've kept it there in case he shows up, you know, to my office. Anyway, we're pathetic. God confirms his truth, and he's true, and he's going to stay true. And if we hold steady... He will reward us in the end. We will live with him forever. He clarifies, makes things clear to us, teaches us, comforts us. He comforts us for a lot of reasons because he's a comforter. But he also, even in that, there's a redemptive purpose. He said, I comfort you so that the comfort I comforted you with, you can turn around and apply to others of your brothers and sisters in the Lord who need comforting. And Paul said, all that we went through, he said, God comforted us so that we could comfort you also. Finally, the main thing is he conforms. He conforms us. What does that mean? All of this really, virtually everything about what I've said redemptively can be put under the simple heading. He's in the business of conforming us to the image of his son. He is about making us like Jesus. That's what he does. Well, what do we learn from that? In Hebrews, also the fifth chapter, pretty amazing statement, verse 7. Speaking of Jesus, verse 7 of Hebrews 5, in the days of his flesh, when he was here on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Prayer is somewhat general. Supplication means Maybe we could say this. I don't know how good an illustration, but prayers is shotgun. Supplications, rifle. Laser. Supplication is intense begging, beseeching, 
on a specific issue. So it says that his days on earth, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. That's describing Jesus. With loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. He wasn't demanding. He was submissive to his father. And notice the supplication, the prayer, with loud crying and tears to him who was able to spare him from death, who didn't spare him from death. Do you understand? He prayed knowing my father can deliver me from the cross. And he said, Lord, if it be possible, make this cup pass away from me that I don't have to drink it. Nevertheless, thy will be done, not mine. And the prayer that he asked was not granted. He did go to Calvary. Now we finish, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's the Old Testament. We don't need to worry about that right now. He conforms us then. He's always working to make me look more like Jesus. And this, I have to be honest with us, the vast majority of that involves unpleasantness and suffering. Going through things we would not choose to go through. Wishing we could avoid it. Suffering, unfortunately is about the only way that we have the rough edges and the non-Christ-like things removed from our spiritual visage. I don't know who it was, Michelangelo or somebody. Someone asked, you know, how do you sculpt whatever? And he just said, whoever it is that he's trying, whether it's the sculpture of David or of all the things he made. He said, I take a block of marble and with the, with the person in mind that he was going to make a resemblance of, he said, I take a block of marble and I chip away everything that doesn't look like David or whoever it is he's trying to make a visage of. That's what Jesus and his Father and the Holy Spirit are doing. They are chipping away in each of us everything that doesn't look like Jesus. And the only way he can do that is with a chisel and a hammer and usually some heat and maybe some grinding, all of which 
is often uncomfortable. So when he says, I'm always working ultimately with, with all humans, he's trying to bring them to look like his son. So it's our, it's our privilege. It's our privilege that he's working always. And I, I hope maybe um, I can learn before I get out of this world to quit default praying, wishing, hoping the minute something is difficult, hard, oh God, please get me through this. Please make this go away. He can't, it's, it's as if the block of marble cried out every time Michelangelo got his chisel out, put your chisel away, put it away, put it away. I'll never end up looking like God wants me to look unless I let him chisel and grind and sand until I look more and more like Jesus. Ultimately then, I am working and my father's working to do what? Make me look like him. Let's bow our heads. Want us to commit in our own hearts. <clears throat> and it's contrary to human nature. Lord, you, you do with me what you want. You chisel, you get out the grinder, you maybe have to use a blowtorch, whatever you do, Lord, be about your constant work of making me look more and more like you. Father in heaven, in the quiet of the sanctuary, I'm reminded of different people who you brought to mind during this out of the Bible, out of scripture, out of the stories that you've given us. One of them is Job. Looked all around and could not find you. But he knew this. Your eye is always upon him, which it is us, and you are always at work. And I'm also reminded of a scripture and just the word, therefore. Of all the things we've learned this morning about you creating us and how you, the extent that you went to to redeem us through Christ on the cross, through the shed blood of our Savior. Therefore, let us live the words that Paul penned so long ago. Therefore, let us offer ourselves up to you today as living sacrifices and allow you to do the work what needs to be done to conform us into your son, our savior, our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray, amen. Love you guys, you are dismissed. Have a great day, everyone.